Amen. Well, take your Bibles this morning and let's go to Genesis chapter number 37. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to look here beginning with the first five verses. We're going to cover uh, the entire life of Joseph this morning. Not, of course, in great detail, but we are working our way through a series on being overwhelmed and coping and dealing with things in life that can be overwhelming uh, and learning some principles from five different uh, Old Testament men uh, and how they coped and dealt with these things in their lives as God uh, worked in them. And you know, there's just some, sometimes things in life can be quite overwhelming. And uh, it's not hard, especially in times like, uh, you know, I've heard newscasters yesterday just kind of joking about not being able to wait until this year is over and just 2020 to be gone and done with. Uh, but, you know, it's not been all bad. God has, has worked and God is uh, still changing lives and working in people's lives. And, and it's certainly uh, the things that we've dealt with in this year have the opportunity uh, to overwhelm, but they also have the opportunity uh, to draw people to Christ and for God to work. Uh, and so we're going to look at some more things along that line. So we began last week talking about being overwhelmed, uh, being overwhelmed by God or by circumstance. And so uh, this morning we're going to continue on that theme uh, in Genesis chapter 37 and beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. Uh, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more, that, it, that they saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him, and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Now I want to speak to this morning on the thought and overwhelming righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, as we again open your word, Lord, I pray as always that you open our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you promised to meet with us. Lord, as life is busy and life at times can be overwhelming, I pray this morning that you would clear our hearts and clear our minds and help us to open ourselves up to you. Holy Spirit, we need your presence with us and you, and you speaking to us in this hour. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to be reminded of some things this morning that will help us to be more like our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we look here, and we started last week talking about this idea of being overwhelmed. And I'm not going to go back through uh, the entire definition. I gave a quite in-depth and lengthy definition last week of what it is to be overwhelmed. Uh, but to sum up the definition, you could sum it up this way. It is to be overpowered and to be completely defeated by a violent... Uh, heavy or crushing wave of whatever you're facing in your life today. Uh, the idea of being overwhelmed is to be completely surrounded and enveloped uh, by something that, that leaves you completely and utterly helpless. David uh, used the word overwhelmed in his writing more than any other writer in the Old Testament, uh, almost exclusively in the book of Psalms. Uh, and he gave it to us in a variety of different circumstances and scenarios in his life. 
the, the greatest of uh, these references, uh, I believe, is, I believe it to be so because it's hopeful. It's not just stressing or uh, I'm overwhelmed, uh, is Psalm 61 and verse 2 when he says, From the end of the earth I will cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Uh, and, you know, we talk about being overwhelmed and think, oh, man, this is going to be kind of depressing. But really, on the contrary, uh, none of us can avoid circumstances that are overwhelming. But all of us can have great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to raise us above them. And we see times in the lives of these men that we're covering over these five weeks where they truly faced very overwhelming circumstances in their life and sometimes it got the better of them but ultimately they rose above that and God lifted them up from it and as a Christian uh, I want to have that kind of testimony not that uh, I've got everything all figured out or not that everything in my life is perfect but uh, but when things get overwhelming that even if I have a bad day or a bad time with it and it defeats me for a while that ultimately God lifts me back out of that and and so we started last week uh, talking about Abraham and Abraham uh, being a man of faith and being overwhelmed by faith. Abraham overcame with that overwhelming faith. And we spoke last week about how he had a faith that was willing to follow. He followed God even when he didn't know where God was going to take him and he didn't know what God had planned for him fully. He knew what God told him, but he didn't know details. He didn't know uh, final destination and location and those types of things. Uh, that can be very overwhelming. But yet he had a faith that followed. Not only that, uh, but he had a faith that was facing fears. And faith must face fears. And when Abraham went and, and had to deal with things, uh, he didn't always succeed. He didn't always respond the, the best. Uh, but he had to face his fears. And by the way, Christian, in the Christian life, you're going to have to face some fears. You're going to have to face some fears and step out by faith and serve God and do some things deliberately and choose on purpose to uh, do what's right at times. He had a life that was constantly forging new paths. Uh, he was constantly having to, to make and form new relationships everywhere that he went. Everybody to him in that area was new. He had to, uh, he had to forge relationships to conduct business and to... Uh, get in some cases permission to be there on the on the land without incident and uh, those types of things and then we saw finally that he had a faith that was focused his faith was no matter where he went no matter what he did uh, even if he temporarily lost focus that was brief and his focus came back to God to his savior uh, and our faith must do the same uh, you know, we see in Romans chapter 4, uh, a lot is said and recounted about the faith of Abraham uh, to the Romans by the Apostle Paul. And verses 20 through 22 bring that home. And particularly whenever they state that Abraham was strong in faith and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. To impute means to put on someone else's account. So if I, uh, if I were to uh, go to Alex's bank and say, I want to make a deposit on Alex's account, don't get your hopes up buddy, uh, then, uh, then uh, that is imputed to his account. It's taking something that belongs to someone else and putting it on my account so that it now belongs uh, to me. And Abraham, when he had faith in God, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ 
at the moment that you put your faith and trust in him as your Lord and Savior was imputed onto your account, was placed on your account. So when God looks at us, if we've received Jesus as our Savior, he does not see our sin. He does not see our unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that when it comes to our salvation, what God sees is Jesus and not us. Uh, and that's what faith does. Faith uh, is that gateway to God. It is what we must exercise to receive the gift that Jesus Christ has provided for us. Now, uh, what does it mean, Pastor? Okay, impute means to put on someone's account and righteous. Uh, and we use the word righteous and righteousness a lot. Uh, and sometimes we take for granted that we just all uh, have been in church enough and intuitively know exactly what that means. Uh, but it actually comes from the Greek word dikaios, which means innocent. So to say that I am righteous is to say that I am innocent. Now listen, there's not anybody here this morning that's innocent. When it comes to crimes against God, when it comes to violating the law of God... All of us are in violation. We all stand guilty before God in our sin. We were born in sin. We didn't even have to do anything but exist with a sinful nature to be in violation of God's character and God's righteousness and God's law. We are a lot of things this morning, but we are not innocent. But Jesus was innocent. It also means uh, to be faultless. We are not without fault. We all have faults. If you doubt whether or not you have a fault and you're married, just ask your spouse and they'll clue you in. And so we all have faults. We all have uh, areas in our life in which there is fault. It also means uh, that we are guiltless. So I could say this morning with all confidence, not being unkind or, or trying to be mean-spirited, but all of us have issues. We all have faults. We all have problems. We all have moments in which the best version of us is not what is portrayed. Uh, and so to say that we are righteous would be a fallacy. When you look at the depth of the meaning of the word, it also means this. When you get into the practical application of it into life, by definition of the original word, it means one whose way of thinking, feeling, or acting is wholly conformed or entirely completely conformed to the will of God. Who here this morning could say that my every thought, my every emotion, my every action are completely and entirely conformed to the will of God? I don't think anyone could make that claim. Uh, truly, if we, if we think that, we truly are uh, self-deceptive. Uh, and so, because it's not in our nature uh, to do that or to be that. I don't know of a single Christian, even the greatest Christians that I've ever known, could say truthfully that in every thought, that in every response, that in every emotion, that everything was always perfect. We all have bad days. We all have moments of weakness. We all have times when life is challenging. And we all ultimately have times when life circumstances become uh, overwhelming. And so uh, what was imputed to us because of faith was righteousness. It is not our righteousness, obviously, but the righteousness of another. It, it means to be approved or acceptable to God. And there's only one person who has been approved and who is acceptable to God in their own merits. 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 ends with the words, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is identified as the righteous. He is the essence and the definition of righteousness. So what God has imputed to my account, what God has imputed, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, to your account is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look this morning, we see that Moses or that, that Abraham uh, was faithful and his great faith, his overwhelming faith, caused God then to impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him. We see this morning in Joseph, Jesus. Jesus as uh, typified in the Old Testament by several different characters and chief among them is Joseph. Joseph is known widely as a type of Christ. In other words, you see many character traits of Jesus demonstrated in the life of Joseph. Joseph is not perfect. He is a man like we are. But the Bible is unique, in, or Joseph is unique in the Bible in the sense that uh, for all of the other characters that we're looking at over these five weeks, we see their faults. We see their flaws. The Bible catalogs and outlines for us uh, their discrepancies. And Abraham, he lied uh, about Sarah and he, uh, he didn't always do everything just right. That, that really, uh, his failure compared to what most of us would envision as a failure is pretty minor, but yet still he struggled. We'll see next week in Moses that Moses had some anger issues. Even though he is noted as, other than Jesus, the most meek person that ever walked, on the earth, uh, he still had times when uh, things overwhelmed him and got the best of him. We'll see when we get to David uh, that for being a man after God's own heart, the Bible details for us uh, many of his faults and sins. Uh, and then we'll see the same for Elijah. Uh, but we look at all of these things this morning, focusing on Joseph and in him, this type of Christ, we see him exercising his faith and overwhelmed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, this morning, if you feel overwhelmed by the circumstances in your life, whether they're financial, whether they're familial, whether they're medical, uh, whether they're just a normal life stress, whether it's something on the job, uh, whatever it is that you face, uh, it can overwhelm you or you can choose to be overwhelmed by your faith in God and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you and he wants to work in your life. In, Joseph, in Genesis chapter number 37, uh, in the verses that we opened with this morning, what we see is a young man who is despised and hated. And he's despised and hated for all kinds of reasons. And we're going to look at some of those here in just a moment. But when you stop and you think about this family unit, if ever there was a dysfunctional, uh, messed up family, it is the family of, of Jacob or Israel. Uh, he has four wives. That's, that, that's right off the bat. That's, that's a whole lot of trouble. Uh, and so uh, there, there are some things that God designed the way he designed them because it's the way that he wanted them and it's the way things work the best. And one husband and one wife is God's design. One husband and four wives is trouble. And amongst them, he loved one of them. We understand and we know that he, he got into that situation because he was reaping what he had sown in his own deceit years earlier to his brother was revisited upon him uh, and uh, for 20 years of his life uh, as his family was formed and as God, uh, in, in spite of his sin, blessed him. But 
Rachel, the one loved, was the one who couldn't have children until Joseph came along. So by the time she came along, he had these wives that basically he was, uh, were, were forced upon him uh, that he's caring for, that he's had children with, and now the one wife that he truly loves with all of his heart has a child, and that is a favored and loved son. Now, uh, he's not favored and loved simply because uh, he is hers, though that is part of the reason. He is loved because of his, his character. And, and by the way, uh, you know, especially as uh, children grow into their teen years and adult years, uh, you know, you look at families and a lot of times there are some of the children in the family are really close to you as, as they become adults and have their own families and some are very distant. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of times the reason is that you, you're close to the ones that are close to you. You're close to the ones that want to be with you. You're close to the ones that want to stay connected to you. Not geographic, geography doesn't have as much to do with it as just a desire uh, to be in, in com connected to and be in fellowship with. Uh, and so we see in Joseph a man who is loved or who is hated and he's hated because he's loved. He's hated because his father loves him. And he's hated because... He's righteous. The Bible tells us here that he gave an evil report. It doesn't mean that he went and made bad stuff up about his brothers. It means that he gave an honest report. It means that he just simply told the truth. Uh, you know, there, there are times when, when you have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to be honest and forthright or whether you're going to, uh, whether you're going to uh, lie to gain an advantage. And so in his case, he told the truth. He didn't, he didn't care about his relationship with his brothers as much as he cared about his relationship with his father. There was loyalty from Joseph to his father. And by the way, as a type of Christ in Joseph, what we see is we see that that, uh, that loyalty is a picture of Jesus' loyal to the father. And in a church struck, in a family setting, children should be loyal to their father. And when there's a breakdown and the children are loyal to one another rather than being loyal to mom and dad, there's a breakdown in their upbringing and in the type of adults that they become. It's not healthy. It's not by design. Children, the family unit should be loyal unto itself, uh, but ultimately everyone should be loyal to the father and to the mother. And we see in a church setting, it's good that the church body, wherever it is, and this one uh, is, is loyal to one another. Uh, if there are problems, that, if you have problems with somebody in the church, you shouldn't be bad-mouthing it to uh, people of other church. You should come to the person you have an issue with and settle it. Uh, but there should be loyalty amongst the membership. But the loyalty amongst the membership should be loyalty to the leadership within the church. And ultimately, more important than any loyalty is our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's loyalty amongst the congregants, but no loyalty to the leadership, if there's loyalty amongst the congregants and no loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're a dysfunctioning body. Jake, or Joseph is loyal to his father, and he gives a good report. He could have said, my brothers hate me. This is an opportunity for me to, uh, to win my brothers over, uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie for them so that they'll like me and so that they'll receive me. Well, that was unacceptable to his character. He just simply stated what the truth is. Uh, it wasn't their actions were not his responsibility, but his character was his responsibility. We see that he was hated for being righteous. We see he was hated because he was chosen. 
He was chosen by his father, but he also was chosen by God. And we're going to cover a lot of the, the really, in part, uh, the rest of this book from chapter 37 to chapter 50 is all the life of Joseph. Obviously, we can't read all of that this morning. And so I'm going to challenge you to go back with this information and take your notes and read the life of Joseph this week and uh, spend some time there. But in, in him we see that he is hated just simply because he is favored by his father. But not only is he favored by his father, but because of his character, he's favored by his God. You see that in the verses following where he begins to receive the dreams from God. He receives two dreams from God. And in those dreams, God reveals to him what his future is going to be. That he uh, doesn't fully understand the prominence that he's going to have globally. But he does understand that in these dreams, it seems that God is saying that your father and that your brethren are going to be subservient to you. They are going to bow before you. It doesn't mean that they're that didn't necessarily mean that they were literally going to come and honor him as king, though ultimately they essentially did. What it means is that your position in God's worldview and what God has planned for you is going to be as the leader, as the uh, superior to their position. Uh, and so Joseph is sharing that and they hate him even more. And even at that point, his father looks and rebukes him mildly at the table and, uh, and they uh, are upset about that and they go out into uh, the fields and take the flocks. And then while they're out tending the flocks, uh, Jacob sends Joseph again to go see what they're up to. Go tell me what's going on out there. I need to know how things are going. And you're seeing uh, not just spying on them, but do they have a need? Do they have something that, uh, they need my, that needs my attention? And, and things of that nature. So what you see is that he is out here as a favored son, favored by dad and favored by God. And because of that favor, he's hated. Because of his love for his father and his loyalty to his father, he's hated. Because of uh, his, uh, his righteousness, his character, he's hated by his own brothers. So we see as he goes out that he is in a life now where he is going to be overwhelmed by many circumstances. He goes and he gives the report and they have had all they can stand of their 17-year-old brother. And it's interesting to note that his time of exclusion, his time of not knowing what God was doing in his life or how things would end would last for 13 years. This is not something that was overwhelming to him for a period of time. He was 17 years old at this moment when they take him and they throw him into a pit and they openly discuss in all likelihood within earshot of him how they want to kill him before they decide to sell him to the caravan that's passing by as a slave. Uh, and he carries that with him. 17 years of age. He was 30 when he was brought out of the jail. He was 30 when he was made uh, Pharaoh's number two man, when he became the most powerful man in all the world other than Pharaoh. So for 13 years, he struggles. For 13 years as he's there, again, a picture of Jesus. He is, he is sold into slavery just the same. He is betrayed uh, for the price of a slave as Jesus would be betrayed by Judas for the price of a slave. He represents everything that Jesus would be. A man falsely accused, a man wrongly hated, a man wrongly cast into a pit, 
a man wrongly betrayed and sold into slavery. And he carries this overwhelming feelings of betrayal from those that should love him. Imagine his fear as he sat in the bottom of that pit, not knowing what was coming next, listening to them talk about his demise. Imagine the fear of being shackled or tied and, uh, and then walking behind this caravan, not knowing where he would go. The fear of not knowing what kind of a man purchased him when he got to Egypt. The fear of not knowing what his life would be like. The unfairness of being wrongly accused by that man's wife whenever he had risen to a place of prominence within the home, making the best of his bad situation, faithfully serving God no matter what came his way, to be then unfairly imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit, and then to have someone that he helped along the way who had promised to uh, help liberate him from the jail only forget him for a period of two or three years uh, as he left, the unfairness by which he was treated with, the loneliness that he would have borne in that pit, the loneliness of isolation from his family, the loneliness of being in a jail uh, and having to be reacquainted with everyone around him. Listen, the circumstances of Joseph's life were any, if they were anything, they had the potential to be overwhelming. To be isolated, to be in fear for one's life. But he also, all throughout his life, was over, had an overwhelming favor from God. Everywhere he went, he found favor. He had favor in his father's house with his father. He had favor in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar, in fact, quickly elevated him to being the head of the household. Only Potiphar was greater within the house. When he went to jail, he quickly was found given favor by the head of the jail uh, and the prison and elevated to a position of leadership. Though he could not leave and he was still an inmate, he was the one who was a decision maker and called the shots. And uh, he, everywhere that he went, found favor. When he finally was brought out to answer Pharaoh's dream, he was given favor from God, even by Pharaoh. An overwhelming favor that gave him power and that gave him opportunity. Everywhere he went, he had power. Everywhere that he went, he was given opportunity Till ultimately, as he became the leader of Egypt and the known world and the savior of the known world, God, he told, and he told his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good that I might go before and preserve life. It was his plan that saved the world. It was his understanding of what God had said to Pharaoh that caused him to understand what was going to take place. And as he rose to power, he had a tremendous opportunity to seek retribution. Do you understand that when Joseph became that prominent ruler in, uh, in Egypt, that he at that moment had the power, he answered to no one but Pharaoh. He could have immediately gone to that jailer and gone to that butler and gone to Potiphar and gone and found his brothers and had them executed. If he wanted revenge, if he wanted his pound of flesh, if he wanted retribution, he had now the power to act upon that. But he did not because what he chose was not retribution but reconciliation. Amen. And everywhere that he went and everything that he did and in every way in which he was wrong, he overcame that because he was righteous in his soul. And rather being overwhelmed with the difficulties and the bad circumstances in his life, he chose to be overwhelmed with his God and God worked through him to bring reconciliation to the world. 
an opportunity to provide, an opportunity to forgive, an opportunity to restore everywhere that he went. Three thoughts about his righteousness this morning. If we would be overwhelmed with the righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus, we need not be overwhelmed by circumstances in the world. Uh, number one this morning, he had righteousness in his character. He was righteous in character. His inner character had to be mastered so that his outer conduct would be righteous. Inner character masters outer conduct. We are outwardly what we are inwardly. What we do and say and how we act and behave outwardly is simply a manifestation of who we are inwardly. And, there, and I get it. There are times when we have a bad moment or a bad day. And that bad moment and that bad day shouldn't necessarily define who we are. But overwhelmingly... We are consistently a particular way in life. And everyone can have a bad moment, lose their temper, have a, a, a problem where they uh, just kind of the wheels fall off. Uh, but, and that doesn't have to necessarily define who I am. But if that's happening on a regular basis, it's no longer an anomaly. But it is in fact just the essence of my character coming out. He's righteous in character. Three thoughts about this this morning. First thing that I would consider is this, that he was righteous at home. In Genesis chapter 37 and verses 1 through 19, we see uh, that he gives that true report of his brothers. We see that he is obedient to his father. We see there's never, uh, you, you know how amazing Joseph is? Find me one time in the Bible where it records a complaint. If my brothers threw me in a pit, I'm pretty sure I would be loudly complaining. If they sold me into slavery, I would be complaining even the more. And whenever I went to Potiphar's house and was bought, I would find something to complain about. We complain by nature. We like to complain. It's easier to complain than it is uh, to compliment. We, we just, it's just, uh, it just flows. But there's not one place in the scripture uh, that I can find uh, where Joseph ever even complained. He was righteous at home. Dad says, hey, I need you to go do something. Dad, can I do that later? Uh, Dad, can I finish this first? No, Dad gave an order and he said, let me grab my coat and I'm on my way. He went and he did what he was instructed to do and he did it with a right spirit and a good attitude. He was righteous at home as a boy, as a teenage lad. He was just a teenager at 17 as he goes out on this day. And it was already well known by 17 his character and his nature and how he conducted himself. And he just happily went along his way. Listen, if we're not righteous at home, it doesn't matter how we act outwardly. If we, if we pretend to be something out of the house that we are in the house, then we're nothing more than hypocrites and liars and we have deceived self. There should be consistency in our lives everywhere that we go. We should be the same at home, at work, at home, at church, at home, in the grocery store, at home, everywhere that we go. We should, in essence, be the same person. The second thing that I would say about uh, righteous being righteous in character, actually there's five things here, is that I would be, that he was righteous in betrayal. 
Notice in Genesis chapter number 37 uh, and verse number 28. Then there passed by Midianite merchant, Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph into the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. He is betrayed, but in his being betrayed, he is still righteous. He is still acting and responding correctly. He is still pleasing to God. He is righteous in betrayal. Not only that, but he's righteous in temptation. He's betrayed. He's sold into Potiphar's house. God grants him favor. And, and we see uh, in this verse not only uh, that he faces temptation, but it expresses his deep love for God. And we'll look at that uh, in a bit. But he's here and he has risen to prominence. And don't think for a moment that Potiphar's wife, that this is the first time that she's came to one of the servants in the house uh, and wanted to be intimate with them. It was in her character and nature to be and who she was and uh, trying to seduce Joseph. She had just never had anyone tell her no before. And when Joseph says no, she doesn't like it. And when he says no repeatedly, she doesn't like it until finally she has evidence in her hand that she can make a false accusation against him. And in chapter 39 and verse 9, it says there, Joseph responds to her after he refuses her again and says, There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he, Potiphar, kept anything back from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not against Potiphar. He hasn't lost his faith. He hasn't lost his relationship with his Savior. He hasn't lost his identity uh, and his of his heritage and where he came from. He is still focused on God. And he is here. And he has been betrayed. But he is still righteous. And now temptation comes. And he can indulge in the temptation. And no one would be any the wiser. No one would think twice about it. It was just standard operating procedure within the house. That, that she belonged to Potiphar. But the head of the house amongst the servants belong to her but he said no I won't sin against my God and she accused him we see his righteousness when he's unjustly imprisoned in chapter 39 and verse number 20 and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison a place where the king's prisoners were bound and he was there in the prison but the Lord was with him you know the amazing thing about this is that I really find it difficult to believe, and maybe Potiphar was a big fool, but it's really kind of difficult for me to believe that Potiphar didn't have any idea what kind of a woman he was married to. But she put him in such a position publicly that he could not excuse Joseph. He didn't put him in the worst prison. He did put him in a prison that was a prison of Pharaoh's prisoners. God providentially worked in his life and put him where he needed him to be and where he wanted him to be so that when Pharaoh would get upset with the baker and the, uh, and the butler then Joseph would be there and uh, be in a position to where he could intermingle with the other prisoners and uh, converse with them and, <coughs> and respond to them. Uh, when they had needs and it's a beautiful uh, picture of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 where everything that's going on in his life God is working on all of the horrible things in Joseph's life God is working in spite of them and using them to create and to produce in Joseph who he needed him groomed up to be 
And Joseph, righteous in his character, was righteous even when, when unjustly imprisoned. He doesn't complain. He doesn't moan and groan. He doesn't sit around uh, lamenting about how life isn't fair. He just simply is a model prisoner. How do you know, Pastor? Because it wasn't any time at all before the head of the prison elevated him to a position of importance. You don't take a, a troublemaker and put him in that kind of a position. You put someone that is cooperative, someone that's respectful, someone that uh, has a good attitude and someone that is, you know, is a good spirit. He was righteous when he was unjustly in prison. And he was righteous in power. Chapters 37, 38, and 39 chronicle for us the, the oppression and the overwhelming circumstances of Joseph's life. From chapter 40 to chapter 50, we see Joseph in power. If you really want to know what someone's like, the sign of what they're like is not when they're trying to get power, it's what do they do with power once they have it. When you look at Joseph, he was not a man that had a little power. He was a man that had great power. Joseph in his power was righteous. He did not abuse it. He did not use it to his own advantage. He did not use it to seek revenge. He simply executed God's will for his life. And we see this morning that he is righteous in his character. There is no fault to be found in him. There can be no blame or accusation laid against him that can stick. And though he is a man and he has fault and he has flaws and he had sin, again, he pictures Jesus for us because Jesus had no sin. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus is perfection. Amen. The second thing that we see about Joseph in his life is not only was he righteous in his character, but he was righteous in conflict. It's easy to do right when it's easy to do right. In other words, it's, when it's convenient, it's an easy thing. It's convenient uh, when it just comes easily, when there's no challenge. Uh, but whenever there's a challenge, it becomes more difficult to do the right thing. When there's, in Joseph's case, a temptation or a deep hurt, a great wound. Uh, in his case, where there's, uh, there's all of these things that he's had to deal with, but he's righteous even in conflict. Two thoughts about this. First, he had an overwhelming conflict within his own heart. Imagine at every stage here, there's a battle that had to be won in here. And the Christian life is no different, my friends. There is an internal struggle, an internal battle in the mind and in the heart that must be won if we would do right. If we would live lives that are pleasing to God, if we would overcome the difficulties in life, if we uh, would be focused in on what God has for us, he had to deal with an overwhelming conflict within his own heart. He had to, he had to face the battle and win the battle within first. If you, whatever you're dealing this morning with this morning, whatever life has dealt you, whatever problems you may have, whatever, whatever uh, overwhelming circumstances you may face, it causes upon you, it forces upon you a tremendous struggle within your own heart and with your own mind and your will and your emotions. And if you would rise victorious over that and serve God in a way that pleases him and honors him, you must win the battle for your mind. You must take every thought captive. You must win the battle internally. Secondly, not only did he win the battle within, but he won the battle without. We know that this morning because in chapter 40 and verse 23, 
Uh, it says, yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. He promised when he was restored that he would help Joseph get liberated. But he forgot. Can you imagine that? You're in prison with the butler. And you have a dream and he has a dream. Joseph interprets your dreams. The dream for the baker was that he was going to be executed and the birds of the air were going to eat his flesh. And as the butler, you witnessed that take place. That you were going to be elevated back to your position. You were going to be restored to your position. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm the butler, I'm thinking, well, I'm sure I'm glad uh, that, that he didn't tell me I was going to be the one hanging from a tree. I would have felt some sense of loyalty, some, some sense of I need to repay this man, some sense of I need to help him. But he just forgot. How do you forget something that important? How do you forget someone that means so much to you, that's done so much for you? But he just simply forgot. But what's Joseph's response? He just keeps doing what he's doing and leaves it in God's hands. He just keeps responding righteously, even in conflict. The conflict that without, it references himself uh, and his life with his brothers. He could have easily taken their lives and no one would have ever thought anything of it. He could have easily imprisoned them and let them rot in a cell. And no one would have ever thought anything of it. No one would have questioned. No one would have overturned it. There was no appeals process. There wasn't going to be any bad press. He had the ability and the power and the authority to do whatever he wanted to do with them. But he did not give in to that temptation. He had the ability in the conflict with Potiphar, the conflict with the butler, the, the retribution that could have been his. Oh, sweet revenge. But he chose to reconcile. He chose at every turn to forgive and to restore. Thirdly, we see this morning, not only was he righteous in his character, not only was he righteous when he dealt with conflict, but he was righteous in charity. In other words, the reason that he maintained his righteousness was because of his love. His love for them was greater than their betrayal of him. His love for them was greater than the wrong that they perpetrated upon him. We go back to our Sunday night series in 1 Timothy and again 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 and talking about the importance of a faith unfeigned and a faith of, and a love that is necessary to mature Christians' lives that is tied closely to this. It is an overwhelming, in his life, he had an overwhelming love of God. And again, I look at his encounter with Potiphar's wife when it says that I cannot sin against my God. It expresses a great love for God. He could not hurt God. He could not harm God. He could not betray God in such a way. He had an overwhelming love for God. My friends, this morning, if we don't love God the way that we are loved by God, then we'll never conquer these things in our life. You may decide that you're going to turn over a new leaf and you may conquer some things in your life for a period of time, but you will never fully, completely, and utterly eradicate that thing that des destroys your life from your life until you learn to love God the way God loves you. I don't know how to do that, Pastor. Just let God love you. We love Him because He first loved us. He demonstrates His love toward us. 
He commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love to us when we were still sinning against him. Again, Joseph, a picture of Jesus. Loving those that were wronging him. Loving those that were hurting him. Loving those who he easily could have just washed his hands of. An overwhelming love of God. He had an overwhelming love, secondly, for, all, for his betrayers. In Genesis chapter 45, uh, we uh, see the account of Joseph coming back and be re, being reunited with his brothers. And uh, there's two or three times when this takes place incrementally and he tests them to see if they're the same or if they've changed or what their heart and their motive is. Uh, but in chapter 45 and verse 3, as he comes into their presence, he says unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brothers could not answer, for they were troubled at his presence. But notice in verse 2, and he wept aloud. Joseph broke down. He couldn't contain himself anymore. He, he fell upon Benjamin. He wept upon his neck. He embraced them and he put their fears at ease, their fears. And by the way, we don't have time to get into this this morning, but don't miss, if you take the time to go and read this uh, passage and the story of Joseph uh, this week in your devotional life, don't miss the fact that on two occasions that Joseph's brothers, after 20 years, and you can go back and you can look at the things that are marked and how far they are into the time of drought, and you can mark that it's 20 years since they sold Joseph into slavery when they're now reconciled and, and being, coming back into contact with one another. And for 20 years when they have problems, the first thought that comes to their mind is this is because of what we did to Joseph. And Joseph reassures them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he blesses them and he brings them to Egypt and he cares for every need that they have. And he's a wonderful brother and uncle uh, to, their, uh, to them and, and to their children. Uh, and then whenever if their father dies, immediately upon their father's death, the same thought comes back to mind. They wouldn't even accept his forgiveness they couldn't move on with their lives because they were consumed with their sin. They were consumed with a decision from years ago, decades ago. But Joseph was righteous in loving them and he loved them as Jesus loved those that betrayed him. When he said in Luke 23, 24 from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You can almost hear the words resonating from Joseph and uh, the heart and the mind of Jesus whenever he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You didn't understand what you were doing when you sold me into slavery. You didn't understand what you were doing when you betrayed me, but God did. And Joseph, righteous in his charity and his love for them, also, we see him over, have an overcoming or an overwhelming love for possibilities. He didn't just love them because he should. He didn't just love them because of who he was. He loved them because he saw not the betrayal of the past, but the possibilities of the future. He didn't just see what they had been. He saw what they could become. And he loved them. 
And we see uh, demonstrated in Genesis chapter 45 and verses 16 uh, through 18 when, when Pharaoh responds and learns Joseph and his brothers and they're blessed and sent back to get Jacob. And it says, And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come. And it pleased Pharaoh well with his servants. Uh, and Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, This do ye laid your beast and go and get you to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come unto me and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt and ye shall eat the fat of the land and now art thou commanded this do, do ye take the wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come and regard not your stuff for the good of the land of Egypt is yours. You have to understand that the Egyptians despised their people and their profession. But their love for Joseph, Pharaoh's love for Joseph and his respect for Joseph was so great as you bring this despicable group of people that are your family and you give them the very best that Egypt has to offer. When Jesus came to me, when Jesus came to you and plucks you from the most loathsome place imaginable, and said, I give you my best. Jesus looked at us in our sin and saw not only who we were, but what we could become. He did not leave us where we were, but he made us someone new. And he's growing and developing and teaching us to be someone different. We see that in Jesus recorded in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 when it says, And for the joy that was set before him, he despised the, or despised the shame enduring the cross. He didn't see the suffering. He saw the joy that he could have in relationship and fellowship with you and I. Joseph demonstrates to his brothers, demonstrates to Potiphar, demonstrates to the jailer, demonstrates to the butler, demonstrates to the Pharaoh and to the world the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's on full display in the midst of all of these overwhelming circumstances in life. Feeling overwhelmed this morning? You can be crushed and swallowed up by the waves of that which overwhelms you or you can be overwhelmed with the righteousness of Christ and overwhelmed with the faith that you have in him. It's your choice. Will I love like Jesus loved? Will I do what Jesus did? Will I be charitable and loving in my relationships and my forgiveness and my restoration? Will I respond righteously and godly in times of conflict? Is my character developed and grown to spiritual maturity because I promise you this my friends what we do in times of conflict is a reflection of our character within it brings it out of us circumstances overwhelming circumstances bring out the reality of who we are can we look in a spiritual mirror this morning and say that we're pleased with who we are when we're at our worst because that's the essence of who we are. Or would we say, God, Lord Jesus, continue your work of making me into a new creation in you. Continue to develop me, continue to grow me, build my character, help me to respond to the test, help me to love 
like you love. When I'm overwhelmed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been imputed unto me, it changes the paradigm for everything else in my life. And here's the problem as we close this morning. If I'm a person who is lacking in this righteousness of Christ living out in my life, my problem is that God's, I haven't allowed God to change my paradigm, my way of thinking, the way that I view things. See, Joseph could have simply viewed things as I've been done wrong. I've been treated unfairly. I've been abused and murder threatened upon me. I've been sold into slavery. I have been cast aside. I have been forgotten. I have been thrown in a prison. He had every opportunity and every right, humanly speaking, to say, if this is the way that you're going to treat me, God, for 13 years, I don't want anything to do with you. But he didn't. Because he had a different paradigm. The world wasn't about him and about his comfort and about his needs. It was about God's plan. It was about God's will. It was about God's working in his life. And so he endured the pit and he endured slavery and he endured being unfairly jailed and he endured being forgotten for the joy that was set before him. And in his faith, he didn't understand what that joy would be. But in his obedience and in his character and in his love and faith and righteousness, he learned the joy of reconciliation with his brothers. The joy of two sons that would be doubly blessed in the nation of Israel. The joy of being the one who would be the line that would bring us Jesus. We don't know what God has in store for our lives, but we do have a responsibility to figure out the will of God and to do it, to live it real, holy, completely, to be willing to make personal sacrifices for the eternal good that God would do in our lives. Are we willing? Am I willing to be loyal to my Father? Am I willing to love like He loves? Am I willing this morning to endure some discomfort and some overwhelming circumstances, realizing that if I'm overwhelmed with faith in God and overwhelmed with the righteousness of Christ, that I can overcome those things. But if I'm not, those things will overcome me. You can choose this morning to be overwhelmed by everything that's wrong and bad in your life. Or you can choose this morning to be overwhelmed with Jesus.